Hello and welcome to David's Politics Show. My guest today is Gideon Levy. He hardly needs much of an introduction, being one of Israel's best known and often most controversial journalists and writers. He has long written for Haaretz and has just been awarded the Sokolov Prize for Journalism, one of Israel's most prestigious awards. He is the author of two books, the first, Twilight Zone, Life and Death Under the Israeli Occupation, 1988-2003, was first published in 2004, and the second, The Punishment of Gaza, in 2010. Well known as a long-standing critic of Israeli policy vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians, he has been known on occasion to cause a few subscription cancellations to Haaretz and is in some ways the bête noire of many in Israel and not just on the right. And yet he remains one of Israel's most read journalists and opinion writers and his work has been recognized both at home and abroad. Gideon Levy, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. It's my pleasure. So I'd like to begin uh, our conversation today by asking you uh, uh, perhaps a, a more personal question about the, the Sokolov Prize for Journalism, which, uh, which you've just won. What does it mean to you personally? And I'd also like you to, to give us your views about what you think it says about Israeli society uh, and culture that someone with the views you've you've uh, you've represented and, and spoken about for many years has been recognized with this prestigious award. So first of all, I was uh, privileged enough to get quite uh, many prizes over the world, but it was always very flattering. But for me, not only the prizes, my whole professional project is aimed before anything else to the Israelis, to the Israeli readers. And therefore, a prize in Israel means so much more for me than any other prize, especially if it's a prize given by the establishment. And the Sokolov Prize, as you mentioned, is one of the most prestigious, if not the most prestigious prize for journalists given by the establishment. So on, on, on this uh, background, it really warms me up. I mean, it really makes me feel good and satisfied and happy. But I won't go too far with it because by the end of the day, uh, I think they ran out of journalists and uh, I was almost <laughs> the last one in the list. Many, many saw that I got it 12 to 20 years ago and therefore I didn't get it until now. And in any case, it's, it's a nice uh, uh, recognition, but let's not exaggerate about it. Okay, sure. That's very interesting. So uh, I'd like to sort of get into the, into the meat of our discussion today by, by bringing up something that I, I read in one of your most recent uh, opinion pieces in, in Haaretz. You wrote in reference to the citizenship and entry law, uh, which is up for its uh, annual extension, and it will be. It, it, there's a vote is expected on it in the Knesset, uh, I believe, uh, tomorrow on Monday. Otherwise, it will uh, expire on on Tuesday. And just for our listeners uh, who maybe are, uh, are not uh, familiar with the details, this is this is a law which dates back about 15 years or so, and which basically bars Palestinians from the West Bank or the Gaza Strip from gaining residency by marrying uh, Israeli citizens. And, and you wrote in this opinion piece that Israel's moment of truth is approaching. And I'd, I'm curious what, what you meant by that. And first of all, if you could tell us a little bit, perhaps you'd like to add a few words about the law, 
tell us what what the extension of the law, if indeed it does get extended, would demonstrate, and why you view it as a moment of truth for the country. Mr. David, uh, in the last years, in recent years, the term apartheid got more and more into the discourse, uh, referring to Israel. And those who oppose the comparison or oppose uh, seeing Israel as an apartheid state always insisted that unlikely South Africa, Israel does not have any racist laws. So here comes this law and proves the opposite. It's not the first law, obviously. The first law is the first law of the state, namely the law of return which makes a very, very clear distinction between the Jewish citizens of this country and the non-Jewish citizens of this country. I don't think there is any other place in the world in which you do any distinction between citizens, not between those who are citizens and those who are asylum seekers or immigrants or residents, but between citizens are supposed to be totally equal. I cannot think about one country in which in its law it makes this distinction, this very, very clear discrimination between one ethnic group over the other, between one religion over the other, and if you work between one nationality over the other. So this law puts a mirror in front of Israel in the way that here the masquerade is over. You can't claim anymore that this has nothing to do with apartheid. You can't claim anymore Israel is a, is a democracy. We are dealing with a very clear and outrageous uh, uh, discrimination, discrimination mm-hmm. between me, the Jewish privileged citizen of this country, and my neighbor, who is a Israeli Arab, as we call them, a, a citizen of this state who should gain exactly the same rights as I do, but apparently this law shows, no. I live in the last 15 years with uh, my partner, she's Swedish, not Jewish, and we're living here together, and we went through a very gradual, systematic, but well-organized process in which she got the residency of Israel uh, after a few years of checking us and everything, which is fair enough. Every country does it. We are even not married. Uh-huh. And I think uh, it showed a very liberal side of Israel. But if my name wouldn't be Gidon, but Muhammad, and I would like to marry my cousin who lives 45 minutes away from my home in Nablus, or in Hebron, or in Bethlehem, or in East, no, no, East Jerusalem, no, Nablus, or Janine, or any place in the West Bank, I cannot marry her and bring her over to here. Mm-hmm. Even though her family is connected to this country so many more generations than I do, and she has roots here much more than my partner has, still the Israeli law say, no, no, you are an Israeli-Palestinian citizen, you are a second-rate citizen. If this is not apartheid, what is apartheid? So, um, So I'm curious what you think about 
the 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 other law which has caused a lot of debate in is both in Israel and abroad over the last couple of years, which is of course the nation state law, because uh, some might argue that the the citizenship and entry law. Yes, it has its unpleasant characteristics, shall we say, but it's 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 designed as an exception. It is it's something that has to be renewed on an annual basis. Um, how do you think about the the nation state law? Is it is it essentially a continuation of the same kind of policy? Are these two laws in tension with one another, in harmony? Tell us how you think about that. Total harmony, David. You see, by the end of the day, we have to face the truth. And the truth is that Zionism is behind both laws. Zionism means in 2021 Jewish superiority. There's no other way to describe it. The Israelis, most of them, speak about a Jewish and democratic state, but at least part of them know the truth. And the truth is that you cannot overbridge between the two, and you have to make your choice. Do you prefer a Jewish state over a democracy, or do you prefer a democracy over a Jewish state? This Israeli tendency to get it all and and think that you can eat the cake and leave it complete must come to its end. Namely, if we are dealing with a population of around 14 million people who live between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean. Half of them are Jewish, half of them are Palestinians from all kinds, Gaza, West Bank, Israeli citizens, but it's half and half. All the 14 million people in different ways are under Israeli control, under Israeli government. In Gaza, it's one form. In the West Bank, it's another form. In Israel, it's another form. But by and large, their fate is decided in Jerusalem and in Tel Aviv. Now, if you look at this view, the Jewish state cannot be a democracy because it is Jewish. You are discriminating half of your population. And that's not a democracy. So those laws, which will appear more and more, are just a reminder what we knew ever since 48, ever since the first law, which was the law of return. We enabled any Jew who land here and get the Israeli citizenship in the airport, without any questioning. While a Palestinian who was born here, whose grandfathers and grandparents and grand-grandparents were born here, who has property here, cannot even enter for a visit. This is Zionism, and we have to face it, and we have to make our choice. Many of the Israelis who are finding themselves as Zionists, you have to realize that if you are Zionist, it means you can't be a democracy. Yes, right. That's uh, that's certainly that's, that's very interesting. Now, I'd like to I'd like to go back to something you mentioned earlier, and that is uh, the the A word, as it were, the, the the word apartheid. Because I know that historically, 
you you were in fact quite reluctant to to use this term but something something changed and now now you are now you are using and you think it, it is appropriate to to use this word when talking about uh, israeli israeli policies not only um, vis-a-vis the, the the palestinians in, in the west bank in gaza but even with respect precisely to the uh, israeli arabs uh, as they know, as they are as they are known so if i could ask a, a two part question here first of all what what is it that changed what 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 made you rethink um, the the appropriateness of that term, and secondly, in in your view, does that does the use of that term depend on a, a similarity with the actual South African experience, or is it some, or is it is it is it an analytical concept, as it were, that can be used even when there are certain phenomena, certain circumstances, which are not exactly like what happened in, in South Africa. So the first part, the answer is very simple and very, very clear. As long as we believed, as long as it was possible to believe that the occupation is temporary, then there is no place to speak about apartheid because military occupation took place in many, many countries. But the main characteristic of military occupation is that it's limited by time. There is a war, after this there is a military occupation, and for a while it stays like this. After 54 years of occupation, and only 19 years of Israel without the occupied territories, when there is no sign that Israel has any tendency, any intention to put an end to the occupation ever, we have to realize that the occupation is not temporary. I claim it was never temporary, but we were misled. Right now it is for sure not a temporary phenomenon. Once the occupation is not temporary, then we have to deal with reality in different analytical terms. Obviously, we cannot call Israel a democracy anymore. Obviously, apartheid is the most precise term to describe the regime of Israel, which does not mean that Israel didn't stay a democracy for its Jewish citizens. But also South Africa was a democracy for its white citizens. What's the difference? There were elections, free elections, freedom of speech. The white community gained quite uh, many uh, privileges, and not only privileges, but really lived more or less in a democracy, like the Jewish community here. Does it say anything about the overall regime of Israel? Would anyone call South Africa a democracy because the white community participated in the election? Nobody calls South Africa a democracy, even if South Africa didn't call it by herself. Now, the question is if you can compare or not, and it's it's a long-standing question. I met quite many South Africans here and in three tours in South Africa. And there are part who say, no, you can't compare it, mainly because of the legal phase. Uh, in Israel, there are no uh, bunches, separate bunches for whites and blacks, for Jews and Arabs. But the practice is a practice of apartheid. 
and the segregation is the segregation, and the, and, and, and the apartheid is apartheid. Now, there are many uh, human rights activists from South Africa whom I met throughout the years. Few of them were here, and I took them around, who claim that Israel is much a worse case of apartheid, for sure in terms of bloodshed, for sure in term, term of, terms of totalitarian regime, which gets into the bedrooms of, of millions of people almost every night. I'm not sure the South African regime reached such a level of to total involvement in private lives of people under the occupation, like here. Mm -hmm. So when we say apartheid, we, didn't, we are not meaning that it is identical to South Africa. No, it's not. There are many differences. Some make, make Israel seem to be a little bit more positive than Pretoria, and some see, make, make Israel look much worse than Pretoria. And in any case, the term apartheid, as I think, is the most suitable one to describe a situation, a regime, which gives superiority to one ethnic group over the other. Yes, right. And and I, I would like to uh, kind of building building on this this point, ask you another historical question. You you've touched on it already, which is, in a way, when, can we date the beginning of this uh, of this problem? In other words, when when did it all go wrong? In your view, there are was it was it as as late as as recently as uh, the second intifada? Was it because of 1967? Um, 1948, even earlier in the 19th century, where, 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 where are the roots of this problem in your view? Unfortunately, the roots are with the establishment of Zionism. I'm reading now an excellent biography of David Ben-Gurion by Tom Segev, and you realize that in the early 20s, the campaign of the Jews who came here was to take over the jobs of the Palestinians who lived here for, gen for generations. They called it the conquering of the labor. It was a Zionistic value to conquer the, the labor. When I look at it today in eyes of, of, of someone who has some uh, perspective, this is the beginning. They didn't come here to live together with the locals. He came here to push them to the corner and maybe to kick them away from here. And therefore, what started in the early 20s never stopped ever since then. The same policy, the same attitude toward the Palestinians, only the means changed because now Israel is a very powerful state, so it can do much worse. Mm -hmm. While those first pioneers in the 20s seem to be very innocent people, but by the end of the day, it was the same intention. Right, and, and, and that, that suggests, of course, that uh, in a way, the, the, the problem is not one of any one specific government, whether, whether Labour or Likud or, or any other manifestation, but it's, it's a deeper ideological problem, right? Absolutely, and you're touching a very important point because Israelis tend to think that before Likud came to power, we had such a wonderful country, such wonderful policies. And when you check it, it all started, first of all, it all started with labor. 
because labor was the founding father of this state. And would it stop in 48? I would maybe accept it, you know, uh, people running away from the Holocaust, trying to find a rescue place. Um, there are many, uh, many arguments to explain why did the Jews come here, even on the account of the Palestinians. The problem is that what started in, in the 20s and continued in 48 never stopped ever since then, no matter who is the government. Labor, for example, is responsible for many, many more settlements than Likud. Nobel Prize winner Shimon Peres has more responsibility both for bloodshed and for settlements, much more than Benjamin Netanyahu. So it's really, it's, it's almost from wall to wall. Right. And, and for those who are interested, um, uh, there's actually a, a very interesting article in, in Haaretz today talking about the, 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 the early debates in, in, in I think, the, the, the first uh, Ben-Gurion government between precisely the Ben-Gurion faction and the Sharet faction about what to do about the, the remaining Arabs, right? There were about 150,000, if, if I remember correctly. And even already at that early stage, you, you can see the beginnings of this dilemma of what to do with these people. They're here. On the one hand, we can't, we can't exactly get rid of them. We, maybe we should give them rights. But on the other hand, that creates compli complications for the, for the, 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 the Jewish uh, character uh, of the state. So it's, uh, it's interesting that one can trace these problems uh, so many years back. Now, if... Um, Maybe we can turn our attention back to the present. Um, as as many of our listeners will know, there's there's a new government in Israel. Uh, I've heard it described as the every everyone except Netanyahu uh, government. And uh, I'd like to ask you uh, what what you think what you think about this government. First of all, um, do you think it has uh, any chances of of survival? Um, at least. You know, long enough to to actually matter. And secondly, what should we expect from it? I, I I take it from your general perspective that we should probably not expect too much in terms of uh, any radical changes vis-a-vis um, -vis the Palestinians. Is that is that how you see things? You see, David, one right-wing government replaced another right-wing government in Israel, and the only difference between the two is that. The first government was headed by Benjamin Netanyahu, and the second government is headed by Naftali Bennett. Mm -hmm. Except of this, you will not find, even with the most sophisticated microscope, <laughs> real differences between the two governments. It is true that some Zionist leftist parties are members of this government and were not members of the former government, but they are quite marginal in the coalition. It's a coalition of eight parties. Mm -hmm. And the, the left, Zionist left parties are only two and very small ones. It is also true that in terms of governing, in terms of, of, of honesty, decency, lack of corruption, I would expect this government to be a better one. But in my view, those are really marginal issues because the core issue is and will be and the main issue which defines Israel as it is, is the, the, the Palestinian problem. And when it comes to this, and I mean it in a very broad 
term, it's not only about the occupation, it's the whole, where where are we heading to? I mean, what, what is the end game? Where, where do we go to? What will be here? There are two peoples, what will be their relation? Mm-hmm. In terms of this false government are in denial, like most of the Israelis are in denial, and the new government will do nothing, but really nothing, exactly as the former government did nothing. It depends so much more on the international community as long as the international community will continue to support Israel and to be indifferent, and it is indifferent, about what's going on here and toward the second apartheid state in history, then things will continue like this. Israel is strong enough. The only game changer will be from the outside. And right now, I don't see any signs for it. Very interesting. And and what what do you what is your take on on the fact that for the first time there is an Israeli Arab uh, party in the coalition itself, headed by Mansour Abbas? Uh, you you've written in Haaretz recently that you, you seem to be quite skeptical about what what this can achieve. T- tell our tell our listeners why this is not as big a deal as as some have portrayed it as. They published an article praising him, but my basic view didn't change. I mean, he is taking a new strategy which challenges the Israeli Jews, namely, he put aside all the big questions. He totally ignored his brothers who live under occupation in the West Bank and Gaza, and he focused only in improving the life standards, the life quality of his fellow Israeli Arabs and Palestinian citizens of Israel. By this, he in a way betrays the big causes, the big goals, but in the same time, he might achieve quite a lot. And therefore, I wouldn't dismiss him, I wouldn't ignore him, I wouldn't uh, uh, condemn him, because the other way was tried for so many years and the Israeli-Palestinian community reached nothing. He really succeeded to challenge the Jews, to break some stereotypes. He is a member of the government, he's not a minister because he chose not to be a minister, but he's a member of the coalition. And a member that they have to listen to because this coalition is so narrow. This might open new ways. I don't think that this will bring the solution. But it can make life better. And uh, when there is so little hope, so maybe we should stick to more modest goals like Mr. Bastard. Okay, right. So, Gidan Levy, we, we started by talking about the past. Uh, now we've we've approached... Uh, the present in here in in the last question, I would like to ask you to give us your thoughts about the future. Where where do you think, given given what we've talked about today and and all the difficulties in the present, where do you think Israel will be in in a generation's time, something like thirty years? And what what relation do you think non-Israeli Jews will have to this future Israel? As you can imagine yourself, I don't have answers for this. I know that Israel is going through demographic changes, which if if they will continue, Israel will look totally different. As you know, the Orthodox Haredi community will become a majority here one day because of the very high birth rate, which goes on and on. This will change Israel. I mean, if they will not change, and there are no signs that they will change, 
this makes this puts Israel in a total different place, end of startup nation, end of uh, OECD, end of um, all the scientific and technological achievements of Israel, because if they will be the majority here, we will study Torah and we will be very poor and very ignorant. So that's one direction. On the other hand, also the Palestinian community is growing, which may will make another dimension to Israeli society. But when it comes to the Palestinian problem, which, as I said, is the most crucial one because it defines the nature of Israel, I really think what I already mentioned, that much depends on the international community, much more than it depends on Israel. Don't expect Israelis to wake up one shining morning and say, no, this occupation is not nice, let's put an end to it. It will never happen. Don't expect any Israeli leader coming up with the idea to reset or restart the whole Zionistic project, because this will be suicidal for him. The only hope is when the world will say enough is enough, when the world will treat Israel as it did very efficiently treat South Africa. Without the international community, South Africa wouldn't remain an apartheid state until this very moment. And I hope that the international community, at least parts of it, will be courageous and devoted enough to take the same measures and really to save Israel from, from itself. Because living as a privileged ethnic group, ruling in a very brutal way another people for so many years is not only hard for the occupied one, it also totally corrupts the occupier. Look what happened to other colonialistic nations, and there there, is, there was a very big difference because their colonies were far away overseas. Here we are dealing with a colonialism which takes place, say, 20 minutes drive from my home. This will affect Israel and Unfortunately, I cannot uh, draw a very optimistic scenario for Israel unless the unthinkable will happen and the international community will get involved. All right. Well, on that note, uh, I'm afraid we'll have to wrap things up there. Um, for those who would like to read more of Giron Levy's work, um, he writes, as I said, for Haaretz. There's also an English language edition for those who uh, don't read Hebrew. So I uh, encourage my listeners to find his opinion pieces there. Uh, it's been a terrific, fascinating discussion. Giron Levy, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, David. It was also for me a very interesting conversation with excellent questions, if I may say so. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning into David's Politics Show. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Until next time, so long.